This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing whether identity has now replaced talent, we'll be asking how the Tories should respond to Labour's recent attack ads, and we'll be looking at the humanists of the past. First up, in his cover piece for the magazine, journalist Adrian Wooldridge argues that meritocracy is under attack. He joins me now alongside the journalist and author of Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK, Simon Cooper. Adrian, in your piece, you say that the traditional societal pyramid with the upper class at the top and the lower class at the bottom has now been inverted by what you call a new culture which prizes virtue over meritocracy. Can you start by explaining what exactly you mean by that? Well, traditional society was one which promoted the virtues of certain groups, primarily the upper classes uh, and also to some extent the clerical uh, classes over the lower classes. They claimed that they were that they, they ruled by right uh, and that right derived from certain qualities of the, of the group. And I think um, in the 19th century, we had a great sort of liberal revolution, a meritocratic revolution, which asserted the rights of the individual. It said that, that the Society should be driven by individuals and should be judged by its ability to give those individuals the tools that they needed to succeed in life. And I think that sort of drove a widening of opportunity from the middle of the 19th century onwards, uh, which sort of reached its peak in many ways after the Second World War. And what we've had recently is a revolt against that, a reassertion of the importance of groups over individuals, groups' rights, group wrongs, and the idea that the remedy of social inequalities lies through empowering groups and um, giving rights to, to, to groups rather than trying to, to work through individuals and individual merit. Simon, what do you make of the argument that the societal pyramid has been inverted? You, you wrote your recent book about how society is still ruled by an Oxford elite. I mean, do you, what do you make of Adrian's argument? Adrian is giving attributing too much power to people who are not very powerful. It's true that there are some people who say that, for example, non-white people or women should be given a lot more power. And most people at the top of society pay lip service to these ideas. But the people who are running our institutions are still, if you take Britain, overwhelmingly from the private school educated classes more white, more male. So I think that it's true to say that there are people who say that this structure that favours certain groups is unfair, and maybe some who say it should be inverted entirely. And Adrian, in his article, quotes some people who say that white people or men have no rights and their, their views should be disregarded. But these are very much voices of not very powerful people. I think that in most Western societies, we have what claims to be a meritocracy, and sometimes is, you know, in parts it is, there are some very bright people who rise to the top from quite ordinary origins. But on the whole, this 
meritocracy, which is mediated through elite universities, especially in the UK, US and France, tends to favor people who come from the traditionally upper or upper middle classes. Well, I, I think that there, there was a meritocratic revolution, as I say, which 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 gained power from from the middle of the nineteenth century onwards, and really changed the fundamental assumptions upon which society was based, from one in which um, opportunities were given to people on the basis of their group membership to one in which it was given to people on the basis of their of their individual abilities. Um, now, that was a revolution which I think was already running out of steam. Um, in the uh, 70s and 80s, because what what you got was this position in which certain groups of people who who, who had traditionally been successful managed to become successful yet again in a meritocratic world because they could buy good educations through private schools, because they could um, uh, use hidden family connections to advance themselves. So I certainly think it's the case that many members of the, the clique that ran this country for a long time, Boris Johnson being a prime example of that, not all, because I think uh, the, the Michael Gove is an example of meritocracy, got to their positions through through privilege, un, un, unseen privilege. So I think meritocracy became, as it were, degenerate. And that degeneracy was aided by the fact that we had this comprehensive, rather ill-considered comprehensive revolution, in my opinion. So traditional modes of upward mobility were removed by the removal of the grammar schools. I remember going to Oxford just at the end of the sort of grammar school era, then looking as what had been a, a university which had more and more people from the state sector became once again a university increasingly dominated by public school educated people, one of whom was Boris Johnson, who happened to go to go to my, my college. So I saw this process of post-war meritocracy being replaced by a reassertion of a sort of uh, a rather more elitist version of meritocracy. So there's been something has been gone wrong with our system of social mobility, but I don't think the way to advance uh, or to address that problem is through group rights uh, and claims of certain groups to be treated as members of groups rather than as as individuals or as aggregates of in, uh, of individuals. And I don't agree either with Simon that these these woke for once it's not 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 one of my favorite words but woke uh, people are not powerful i think they're extremely powerful within corporations the d the diversity um equity and inclusion bureaucracy is an enormously powerful bureaucracy in universities but also uh in the corporate world and i think it's 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 missing an opportunity what we should be doing now is completing the meritocratic revolution, completing a revolution which allows excellence wherever it's found to flourish rather than reasserting uh, the importance of, of, of group rights or, or, or bit different group rights from the pre-modern ones that I, I start my article talking about. Simon, what do you make of the argument that certain groups are now treated favourably by big corporations or universities? I mean, is that true or do you think that's a bit of a fallacy that's presented nowadays? I mean, I agree with Adrian, like him, I'm a liberal, and I think that people should be assessed as individuals and that we shouldn't regard ourselves as being members of groups. However, it's a simple fact that for many decades, if you're a woman, you had fewer opportunities. If you're not white, you had fewer opportunities. If you came from the lower social classes, you had fewer opportunities. So I think it's quite right that universities and corporations take that into account, not just in the interest of fairness, but also to increase the talent pool so that not all CEOs come from overwhelmingly, not 
that overwhelmingly CEOs, not all of them, come from a white male, upper middle class, upper class background. It's just a ridiculously narrow talent pool in which to select our country. And I think the argument that woke had won, if again, like Adrian and I detest the word woke, the argument that woke had won would be a lot more powerful if our institutions and corporations were overwhelmingly headed by sort of randomly selected members of people of color groups or women and transsexuals, which seems to be a, the right-wing nightmare. It is obviously not the case. I think that Oxbridge are setting a very good example. If you want to reinstate a meritocracy, which I'm not entirely sure is the way a society would ideally be run, but if you want to select, a, if you want to reinstate a meritocracy that selects people aged 18, selects the elite aged 18, as US, UK and France have done for a very long time, Oxbridge, I think, are setting a great example for US and French universities in taking into account your level of privilege and saying, what kind of school did you go to? Were you on free school meals? Are you the first in your family to go to university? Are you from a, an ethnic group that has not been favoured? I think taking those things to, into account is much fairer and is a much better way to find talent. Oxbridge now has an average of 70% of new undergraduates arriving being from state schools, which I believe is the highest in the history of Oxford and Cambridge. See, uh, again, we're struggling to disagree with each other in some ways because I agree with all of that. But I think that it's quite possible um, to advance the interests of uh, people from working class backgrounds or people from ethnic minorities or women through the meritocratic calculus. Indeed, I think it was that was happening under meritocracy, you've got this huge surge of working class people into the universities after the Second World War through a system of uh, academic selection. You've had women doing exceptionally well in universities. Indeed, uh, they constitute the majority of university students in Britain and indeed the United States, significant majority in the United States, without any of this um, woke, for want of a better word, interference. And I think the same was actually true of ethnic minorities as well. They were naturally, when treated as individuals, because the distribution of talents is equal um, between different different genders and, and, and ethnic groups, they were naturally doing extremely well. But what we're having now is the rise of... Uh, a woke bureaucracy, which is addressing a problem which to a very significant extent is being solved through meritocracy and claiming, no, it's not being solved. We need to do something else to address this problem. And what they say they need to do is to, uh, is to look at structural causes of problems and address people as groups rather than, than as individuals. And I think paradoxically, this actually can hinder the progress of certain subaltern certain ignored groups in the past because what you have for example in the united states is university administrators saying let's get rid of sats or let's suspend sats and let's use other methods of selection such as much more subjective uh, methods let's take holistic assessments and those holistic assessments tend to be forms of assessment that actually benefit people from fairly privileged backgrounds uh, and I think one of the things that you have in the United States is a sort of hidden conspiracy between the traditional white Anglo-Saxon elites, which dominated universities, plus certain selected ethnic minorities whose numbers are being boosted through affirmative action against this new challenging group, which is Asian, Asian Americans, who would be much more represented if it were. So what you have, this strange thing you look at American universities, what they're doing is they're keeping forms of affirmative action 
they're also keeping systems whereby um, legacies are given privileges in universities. So legacies, which means that if your father went to Harvard, you are treated um, better as, a, as an applicant, you're given, you're given a chance. And you see, these two things are opposite, you tend to think. I don't think they are opposite. I think they're both sides of the same coin, which is saying, let's treat people as groups rather than as, as, as individuals. So I'd like to get rid of all of these sorts of things and say, let's just treat people as individuals um, in corporations, in in, in, in educational institutions, in universities. And I think if you did that, you would have a rise of women, a rise of ethnic minorities, a rise of, uh, of, of sexual minorities, whatever. And um, you would be able to do that without reintroducing this old way of thinking, which is we must have so many people from this background, so many people from the other background. But Adrian, sorry, let, let me just ask a question there. Mm-hmm. You believe that we don't need at all to consider what school an 18-year-old has been to, what their parental income is, their parental situation. You think none of that has any bearing on their potential, the grades they're getting versus their potential, that we should treat the grades of somebody from Eton exactly the same as somebody from a a, a poor, broken family in an inner city, say? No, I don't, no, no, I don't think that's at all. I think what we're looking for is promise, and it's clearly the case that some people, like a sort of fattened goose, will 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 have been um, you know better educated than other people. So we have to look a bit through the, the the grades at people's potential. And somebody who's come from a broken family, from not very well educated parents, and they get you know three A's, and somebody from Eton gets four A stars um, with all of the, the the greatest advantage. I would go for the first person rather than the second because. But what I'm doing there is looking at the candidates on the basis of their individual potential to do very well, not looking at what the the woke bureaucracy is looking at, which is an attempt to create some sort of ethnic reckoning or, 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 or gender balance. Yes, I do believe we, 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 that we need to make many attempts to make sure that meritocracy isn't something that's distorted in favour of, of a privileged group. But I think that's a very different way of conceiving of the world than the the, the woke bureaucracies. I actually would advocate a system of, of giving a lot of university places on the basis of pure SAT scores rather than just on the basis of um, uh, of academic tests, which are which are very gameable. Well, one of the things that's happening in the United States is we're we're moving towards this system of holistic assessment, uh, whereby you look at people's personal statements, you look at what they've done on their on, on their holidays, you look at the s- total suite of attributes that they have um, in the name of being woke or enlightened, which I think is just a way of reintroducing. Well, it's, it's a, that, that, that's an old fashioned. I, I mean, I, I don't think it's what you call woke. I think it's a much older American assessment, which was designed to stop universities selecting the most, only the most academically successful candidates, which were precisely at the time and effort to discriminate for wasps against Jews, and now, as you say, is often an effort to discriminate against Asian Americans. I don't think it's particularly woke. I think it's a defence of, of the status quo. Um, well, sorry, I just wanted to add that I think a, a lot of what's happening about wokery is a sort of defence of, of the status quo. It's a way in which I think that certain dominant groups are trying to reinforce their their, their, their dominance by bringing in a few members of ethnic minorities. 
because uh, the big fear, I think, amongst a lot of um, traditionally dominant groups in, in the United States is that all of their university places are going to be taken away by, by Asian Americans, uh, just as they were traditionally very frightened of what was happening with the, with the Jewish population. It's very interesting that these legal cases at the moment that are being brought against affirmative action in the United States are being brought by, by Asian American groups who feel that they're being discriminated against. Can I can I just ask you about the term woke? Because you maybe find it an uncomfortable one to use, and, and and why do you think that is? Is it has it just become a cliche, Simon? What do you think? I think it's become a label that refers to anything that points out sexism or racism. I mean, some people say silly things about sexism and racism. Some people say intelligent things about sexism and racism. Sexism and racism are genuine issues. And so just to say, if anyone raises those issues or anyone raises the issue of diversity, oh, that's woke, is a way of shutting it down. And in the le- I, I disagree with, within woke, often people are referring to attempts to shut down freedom of speech. As a liberal, I'm totally for freedom of speech. If someone wants to come to a university and make a speech for Mein Kampf, I would say go for it. What I am on the side of people tired as woke, what I'm totally on their side about is sexism and racism are very important pillars of the way that most societies work and it's important to discuss identify and try and combat them and i i say that without apology thank you adrian and simon next up in his piece for the magazine this week ad man paul burke suggests how the tories should respond to labor's attack adverts released last week the adverts have caused a stir for seemingly accusing rishi sunak personally of negligence when it comes to child abuse Paul joins me now alongside Carl Chauvin, who leads strategic communications for Servation and was strategy director under Jeremy Corbyn. Paul, let's start by letting listeners know about your involvement in Blair's 1997 campaign. Yeah, um, I work as an an advertising copywriter and the agency I worked at, which was called um, BMP DDB, had the Labour Party account. And so we all used to work on, not all of us, but used to work on on Labour and the reason I got into it is in 1992 everyone expected Kinnock to win and Major to lose and I just I don't know why I just thought no he's he's not going to be the Prime Minister that man that Welsh man is not going to be not because he's Welsh but (laughs) that one there is not going to be the Prime Minister and I kept saying it you know when you say things you don't really mean it but you keep saying he's never gonna and he didn't and so the next day they said to me why did you think that? And then they put me on the Labour Party account. And you and you say in your piece that yes. if you had presented this sort of attack oh. ad that Labour presented last week, you would have been you would have been attacked. What, why attacked. why do you think it was such um, a failure? I'd have probably as an been sort of laughed at, and they say they just said, "Don't be stupid! Don't you know the first thing about advertising? Why on earth would you do that?" Just for so many reasons. One, I don't know who wrote this, but I get the feeling it was somebody. If you like, I know it sounds weird, but too involved, too invested in the Labour Party. You've got to be more like an advocate. You've got to be sort of stand back and realise your own strengths and your opponent's weakness and all that sort of thing. And it started almost, it seemed to come from the premise that everybody hates the Tories, the wicked Tories, the horrible Tories. And people don't, the whole country doesn't necessarily feel like that. And even if they did, the one thing they like about the Tories, or they like more than the rest of the Tories, is Rishi Sunak. So to attack him, just they'd go, no, don't do that. That's that's the that's the thing people like. There are plenty, and, and then also tell the truth. You know, as as it's transpired, the thing they were accusing him of, he wasn't even in the government. So, 
And Carl, you, you know. were you were strategy director under Jeremy Corbyn. What did you make of Labour's latest attack ad on Rishi Sunak? Just some context. I also did a similar, though more junior role under Tony Blair. Okay. So I've experienced a sort of Labour political communications from a variety of different angles. So, I mean, I, I agreed with a lot of what was being said there, but I, w- I would broaden it slightly more to the overall, you know, the broader area of political communications. And, you know, one, one of the things that's been discussed quite a lot is is negative campaigning, is negative attacks the right way to go. And I, I you know, I'm no shrinking violet and I absolutely see the need for negativity and attacks um, against your political opponents. On, on this particular advert, I think, and it's been, it's been alluded to and said, I think the issue with it was, is on one, on one level, it was an incredibly effective form of political communication in the, in the narrow sense that everyone is talking about it and on the grounds that all publicity is good publicity and people are talking about the Labour Party and they're talking about their campaign. But there's a difference between noise, the noise that people hear, and the message that people take from it. So is the message that people take from it that Rishi Sunak is doesn't want people to be get custodial sentences for child abuse? That's what people are hearing. That's what the accusation is. And I think it's not an effective form of communication because I just don't think anyone would believe it. I don't, I, you know, people that are coming up for interviews, the, late, the Labour spokespeople are being asked, do you believe that's true? And not a single one of them has been able to say, yes, I think that's true. So I mean, that, that's page one of advertising. You can't lie. Yeah, and, and Paul, you say in your piece that the idea that all publicity is good publicity is actually false. Oh, Can it's rubbish. Of course, yeah. To- it's a total advertising myth. It's, it's it, a complete it? myth. Ask Gary Glitter, ask Gerald Ratner whether all publicity is good. But you know, they deserve what they got, but they got a lot of publicity. And, uh, you know, ask any disgraced or cancelled person whether all publicity is good. It's just not. It's just one of those, one of those things. And the publicity that Labour are getting is almost 100% negative. And, and richly, they've made their leader look like an idiot. And when he came out and sort of almost under suffrage, you could feel him sort of at gunpoint having, having to defend this rubbish. And you're going, no, we quite liked you. It's like somebody going in a football match, one nil up, committing a foul that they didn't have to commit. The opposition scores a penalty. They've got 10 men and the opposition wins 2-1, which I fear, not fear, sort of feel that's what might happen next year. But Cole, you, you just mentioned that you sometimes think that a bit of rough and tumble in politics is no bad thing. What, what do you think makes a good attack ad? Okay, I mean, this, this, is, this is really important and I was doing some tweets about this which was generating some, some comment. But I think there are some people that think, look to the, in, in modern times, as the Boris Johnson Brexit bus advert as the model. And I think there is a fundamental difference between that advert, which was incredibly successful, albeit misleading, and the current Labour advert, which is that in in order for a political message to be successful, it has to tell people, it has to say something to people that they already have an inkling is true. And it's about cementing that sentiment into people. So... There are a lot of people in the country that thought 
we're paying too much for the EU, we could spend the money on the NHS, or, or we could spend it on different things, which was the key, which was the key message. So although misleading, it played to a sentiment people had. Nobody in the country, I doubt, believes that the problem with Rishi Sunak is he doesn't want child sex offenders to be prosecuted. So it's telling something people are just going to say, no, I don't believe that's true. And then as as was being alluded to, one of the positives of Rishi Sunak is that people, I think, see him as a reasonable guy leading a party that they might see as less reasonable. So it's attacking the person you know, and the man that people see more positively than than the party itself. That's true. Um, he, he's, I think he's increasingly seen as a, a decent man who's doing his best to, um, you know, to distance himself and repair the chaos of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. Yeah. Oh, sorry, well, sorry. You, you then also set out in your piece what you would do as a kind of attack ad on Keir Starmer. Can you explain to listeners how you might go about that and sort well, of take us through the motions what, of that? What I'd do, um, again... Just to make it clear, I'm not really Labour or Tory. Um, I've written ads for baked beans and fish fingers, and that they're just like that to me. The first thing I'd do if I were advising the Tories is absolutely nothing, because the ferocious backlash against this is doing all the work for them. So I'd see how it went, uh, and then if I needed, you know, if they needed to launch attack ads of their own, they can do some that are far more rooted in truth. They could, for instance, target women and say, uh, if you're a woman, could, could you really vote for a man who can't define what that even means? Though it's a subject of some conjecture, you could get away with saying, uh, is, this the, is this the DPP who um, failed to prosecute Jimmy Savile? And then the other thing is, um, yeah, Keir Starmer wants us to vote for him this time, but who did he want us to vote for last time? Jeremy Corbyn. Keir Starmer did not raise his head above the parapet. He did not uh, endanger his own position by, uh, you know, calling out anti-Semitism. He was quite happy to keep his nose clean, keep his head down. And I don't think that's the behaviour of a leader. Carl, what do you make of that? What do you make of this idea that one of the main lines of Tory attack might be that they previously had Jeremy Corbyn as their leader? Yeah, I I mean, I, I, I don't personally view that period and the, and the Jeremy Corbyn leadership in quite the same way as most of the political class does at the moment. So I would look to an issue about the fact that he did attract millions of votes in 2017. And even in 2019, there were millions of people voting for Labour. And I think there were serious issues around Brexit and anti-Semitism that seriously eroded that vote and made that election almost impossible for Labour. I think the thing with this advert is slightly different to that. I think that there is both a potential positive with this advert for Labour, but also a downside. And I don't really know which way it's going to go at the moment. But the there is a serious issue, which is how to make the the Conservatives running of the economy and the cost of living crisis into an issue which resonates in a way that people blame Rishi Sunak and hold him responsible. And I think that's very difficult for Labour to do. And one of the potential upsides of this advert is it got people talking about a particular advert frame, 
around something that was less relevant to people's lives. But the, the resulting noise around it meant that they were able then to roll those adverts into a story about the economy, which are running now, which is probably the case that more people are noticing than they would have had that not been the case. So I think that that for Labour is a potential upside. I think the, the downside, and this is a serious downside, is, and this is this is quite complicated, but one of the residual electoral problems for parties of the left and the, and the centre-left, and this has always been the case, is this public sentiment, this underlying public sentiment that somehow people on the left and the centre-left and Labour are soft on crime and they're, and they're soft on, on some of the issues, that some of the maybe cultural issues that really matter to people. It's very, very difficult for Labour to make that stick on the Conservatives because people just don't believe it about the Conservatives. It's like the Conservatives are good on crime as far as people are concerned and Labour are good on the NHS as far as people are concerned. That, that is a stuck public attitude. Labour can at best neutralise it, but it's also seen as not legitimate in, in sort of nice political life to attack politicians for being soft on crime, in particular soft on sexual offences. Now, what Labour has done here is they've opened the gates for the Conservatives to respond in a way that will now be seen as legitimate. So what they've done is a, a subject that wasn't seen as legitimate for public debate and which was a weakness for Labour is now going to be regarded as very legitimate and I think that is a real problem for Labour that, they, that they've that they opened up. Um, Paul, just finally, you finish your piece by saying that you could see a situation where Rishi could almost rebrand as new Conservatives in the way that Blair yeah, was the new Labour. You could. I mean, how would you go about doing that? Do you the think first thing I'll do is, um, again, going back to I was thinking then the stuff I've worked on over the years, and I used to work a lot on Volkswagen, and it's no good saying, the Vauxhall Astra is rubbish. You've got to say why the Volkswagen Golf is good. And it's all very well trying to pin some sort of blame for some sort of econ economic crisis on, on Rishi Sunak. But Keir Starmer has got to come... People would vote for him if he gave them a reason to. He's got to say why he'd be good on the economy, why he'd be good on crime. He's just saying, Labour, we wouldn't, we wouldn't let you... Well, what are you going to do? Um, give us some actual detail. And also, with the sex offenders crime, it's a shame for Sunak that he is associated fairly or unfairly with not prosecuting Jimmy Savile. So um, I think Rishi Sunak now has to just keep his powder dry, just carry on. It, it was going to take an awful lot of luck, but he's got to carry on repairing, carry on rebuilding and sort of distancing himself from Boris Johnson and Liz Truss and then get another team around him and they'd almost be like a, a new party. It, this thing about COVID, I mean, we were in lockdowns. It, it was a, you know, it was like a different era. It was like before the war, you know. And um, he's got an opportunity. That's all finished. Now's the time for redemption and rebuilding. And Labour have just played into his hands like fools. I can't believe they did that. Thank you, Paul and Carl. And finally, in the book section of the magazine, Philip Hencher reviews Sarah Bakewell's new book, Humanly Possible, 700 Years of Humanist Thinking, Inquiry and Hope. He says that he admires the humanists of the past and finds them consistently kinder, more decent and generous than their contemporaries. Philip and Sarah join me now. Philip, in, in your review, you seem somewhat surprised to find that humanists were, and indeed are, nice people. Why was that? 
I think it's not so much a surprise as um, my realisation as we went on with uh, with Sarah's very interesting book that um, it's actually something worth considering. Because actually, I mean, if you're writing, if you're reading a, a history of um, Archbishops of Canterbury or of Chancellors of the Exchequer, you wouldn't really, it wouldn't really cross your mind to ask, are these people nice or not? But humanists were very conspicuously, obviously very nice people in a kind of social way. Everyone commented on how agreeable Hume was, and Montaigne was obviously a very, very charming man from his writing. And it goes on like this. And I think what struck me as surprising was, after all, we are talking about people who are are discussing and who are considering human behaviour. So why not actually ask, in this case, what is it that makes these people behave well? Sarah, do you think Philip should be surprised by that? I've, I've heard in previous interviews that you've, you've said that hopefulness and good cheer are all founding humanist beliefs. Well, that is true, but I must also add, I'm afraid, that not all humanists were such nice people and not all of them were that nicely behaved. There were some who were renowned for their bad temper and picking fights with people and always up for a a debate which, you know, would sometimes become so heated that it would even end in fisticuffs, certainly in the Renaissance context. So we're talking about the humanists of the literary sort that, that were, of course, Florence, you know, in the 15th century was filled with, and they were pretty bumptious characters. Even some of the modern ones, they absolutely had their flaws. I mean, I, a great admirer of Bertrand Russell, for example, in the 20th century, but he could be a, a difficult character. He had definitely had his weak points. Um, I, so I'm not sure they were always nice. I, I kind of found the same panoply of, of different personality types among them in writing about you know, a whole range of humanists of different types as among human beings in general. Human, all too human, I think, would be a fair description. I think I'll, it, I think I'll rephrase that to say that um, uh, people didn't need external ethical structure in order to be extremely nice people then. I think the implication in humanism is, of various kinds, is that we should be nice people if we're going to be nice because it's worth doing for our own sake and each other's, rather than because there's a rule that's been handed down to us on high, which says thou shalt do this or that or the other, or thou shalt not. So it was brilliantly put by Kurt Vonnegut, who said, I am a humanist, which means in part that I've tried to behave decently, regardless of expectations of the afterlife. So I think there is a sense that being a humanist, it's not so much it need, means being a nice person, but it means being a nice person because it's worth being a nice person rather than because we're scared of consequences if we don't or because we've been told not to be bad. 
Philip, you mentioned in your review about humanism leading to the development of the novel. Can you talk a bit about that, please? Well, I think it springs really from a very important thing that um, <clears throat> that Sarah uh, draws attention to, which is uh, Montaigne, the uh, 16th century essayist, um, valuing a great deal of diversity. And by diversity doesn't mean what we tend to mean by diversity. He means uh, differences of opinion, which might equally be worth investigating and exploring. And I think that the novel doesn't come about until there's a sense that we might like to go into somebody else's head in a range of people's head. It starts really with um, uh, Daniel Defoe deciding that he wants to write in the voice of Mole Flanders, who must have been as different from him as, as possible. That range of different viewpoints all competing for our attention, I think, is at the absolute heart of the culture that, uh, that humanism created. The other great contribution of Montaigne, I think, to the various kinds of writing that went into the modern novel is just that interest in the human, the interest in human nature, which for Montaigne means his own, because he's fascinated by his own motivations and behaviour and feelings, but also he's fascinated by what other people do. And that's distinct from interest in divine matters, theology, which is set apart. He says we can leave that to its own devices like royalty doing their own thing, while the commoners have our own thing and this is writing about the human dimension of life and that becomes absolutely the the great underlying principle of the modern novel you've got somebody like fielding and tom jones saying that the dish that is presented in this novel is human nature it's just one dish but it's so varied and rich and full of diversity that we can dine on it for hundreds of pages in effect i think i think the other key thing is that given the complexity of uh, of human nature that the novels um, exploring there's um, there's no telling what the outcome will be or what the course of events is going to be and that's a significant change from literature before the uh, the realist novel i think there's only one point in the whole of shakespeare where something happens that the reader does that the audience doesn't know it's going to happen in advance. And it's when um, Yakimo emerges from the chest in Cymbeline. Now, that sort of thing is absolutely, it's absolutely crucial to the novel. The sense of the complexity of, uh, of human relations and human motivations leading to who knows what. And Sarah, just finally, could, could you give us a little bit of an outline of where humanism is now in, in modern society? There's a very strong organised humanist movement with uh, national branches all over the world and Humanist International, which coordinates what they do. So there's this strong organised humanist movement, which is mainly concerned with, I think, supporting the rights of those who identify as humanists and, and work on humanist concerns all around the world, often in places where this is very difficult, very dangerous sometimes, and also just campaigning and raising awareness of the humanist alternative in the sense of a non-religious alternative in finding morality and meaning in life. But there's all sorts of other ways of being a humanist. So there's those who study the humanities, those are also known as humanists. And of course, they're very much 
alive and well, though sometimes struggling in some contexts uh, in the modern world. It's We're looking at, I think, a world in which a lot of humanist ideas have made great headway, though not without setbacks and opposition, but they're not always thought of as being humanist ideas. They're not always given that label. Uh, a lot of people kind of a humanist without necessarily realizing it, but it's such a rich and varied tradition that it's really tremendously influential in all parts of life. Thank you, Philip and Sarah. As ever, you can read everything we've talked about if you pick up a copy of the magazine this week. I'm Laura Prendergast, and I do hope you'll join us again next week.